Now read together the text of the message this morning, which is 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you have your books of praise still open and you compare with the reading, maybe the children can notice that too, how the psalm we just sang is also reflected in the reading, the ark being taken of priests, being killed, widows who could not even speak. We read, we see that also here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The context of the first part of verse uh, 1, the word of the Lord came to all Israel. We read, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever wanted something so much that you tried everything you could think of to get it? In such a situation, desperation, your mind goes through every option that might be useful to your cause. What can you use to to get it? Who can you convince, maybe manipulate to help you? Maybe you're a young child and and you really want to play a video game even though it's a school day. So you make plans. You invite a friend over and then use that friend by asking them to ask for permission from your mom or dad. You put your, your parents in a difficult situation. Or you're a teenager and you deliberately go full send in making plans to go to the beach with your friends So that your dad feels immense pressure when you come to him at the last minute with all your friends and their beach gear around you asking to use the car the last minute. Or maybe as an adult, you really, really want all your family together to go camping or take a holiday and and you try guilt your children into joining you for a holiday. All these different kinds of attempts, they're called different kinds of manipulation trying to force someone to conform to your will. And sadly, even though it rarely leaves us with a good feeling afterwards, it's something we often resort to. And it's no surprise then that we we often struggle with this temptation also in our relationship with God, who is able to do anything at all. Like many of Jesus' followers, when he was doing his miracles, We have a strong desire to harness God's ability to heal or change governments or end war or protect us from from harm, something like that. So we try to harness God's power. That's exactly what happened to the people of Israel when they suffered a great loss of soldiers, 4,000 Men, imagine, that's a, that's a lot of people, a lot of families affected. They really wanted victory. They wanted freedom from oppression. They wanted good things for the people of God. And so the elders made the plan to harness God's power for their own advantage, not by 
coming to him in repentance and prayer, but by manipulating him, by bringing the one who sits enthroned on the cherubim, on the cover of the ark, into battle, so that he would be forced to defend his holiness against the Philistines and defending his holiness also his people. But it did not go well for them. And in this event, we learn an important thing about the Lord. We learn that he cannot be forced or manipulated to, to save people from hardship. He cannot be controlled by people to, to lift his punishments and discipline before the appointed time. The Lord we worship is not obligated to, to save his covenant people from hardships that they may face along the way. And finally, we also see in our text that the, the Lord brings salvation to his people from his wrath and from punishment of their sins, which is, which is more than just delivery from the hardships of this life. And the Lord does this in his own way, which may look different than we might expect. I preach this gospel to you under the theme that the Lord of glory governs everything from his throne in heaven, governs everything for the well-being of his church. We'll see first that he does not have handles and secondly, he calls us to submission. Our text introduces several chapters that are focused on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. We learn from Ezekiel, or Exodus 25, and also 37, that the Ark was a wooden chest, acacia wood. It was overlaid with, with gold that was, was three and three-quarter feet long, Two and, two, two and a quarter feet high and, and wide. And the Lord told Moses to put the two tablets of the law inside the ark chest. Had a lid that could, could open. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 4 that at some point the ark also contained an omer of manna and Aaron's staff that budded. And the cover of the ark, which was called the mercy seat, was ornately designed with two pure gold cherubim whose wings touched as their faces looked down on the mercy seat. The cherubim, which were probably similar in appearance to the, the well-known sphinx with a lion body and a human head and, and two wings, were understood to be supernatural guardians of sacred places. The angels that were in places, in, in holy places, also in, in the tabernacle. In several passages of Scripture besides 1 Samuel 4, Psalm 80, or Isaiah 37, the Lord is said to be enthroned upon the cherubim, presumably above their, their joined wings. And the special promise that the Lord gave with respect to the ark was the passage we read in Exodus 25, verse 22, when he said, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. It was a most holy symbol of God's presence with his people. And so the ark was to be kept in the darkness of the holy of holies in the tabernacle and only approached in the covering of the smoke of, of incense which represented the prayers of God's people. And only through atoning sacrifices made 
atoning blood made from many sacrifices. The Lord gave the people the ark to stand in their midst as a symbol of his, his presence and the peace that his, his people could, could have with him in spite of their sins that were revealed in those Ten Commandments that were now covered with the blood of the sacrifices. We see how it all points us forward to the gospel we still celebrate today, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who covers over our sins and the mercy of God. Peter even says angels long to look into these things. And then we notice in Exodus chapter 25 verses 12 to 15 that that box, that ark had handles, had carrying poles that fit into the four rings on the sides of the ark. In the book of Numbers, when Israel was, when we read about Israel moving through the wilderness, we read that the ark went before them to find a resting place. And every time Moses would pray, it's in Numbers 10, verse 35, he would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. You can see where the words of Psalm 68 come from that we will sing together. That knowledge of this events in, in numbers with the ark being called to arise and, and go forward and the, lead the people into battle against their enemies, combined with the, the knowledge of the prominent place of, of the ark when Israel was entering into the promised land and they crossed the Jordan River, and then the place of the ark when, when Israel was circling Jericho until the walls fell down. It helps us to understand why the elders thought it might be a good idea to go and get the ark to help them to avoid a second defeat in their battle against the Philistines. The mighty shout we read that they, they gave when the ark of the covenant was brought into the camp. It, it indicates that the Israelites were, were looking for a repeat of the display of God's power when the walls of Jericho fell down, you can read there that they gave a mighty shout and the walls fell down. But the elders of the people had misunderstood what they had heard about their own history. They made their decision about bringing this ark into battle based on pagan religions around them. In those places, their so-called gods, which were often the different forces of nature, like the sun, or like wind, or like storms, or like fertility, their, their, their so-called gods were, were connected to the earth by means of some idol statues that people made for them. We'll sing about that in Psalm 115. And these idols that they would keep in their homes sometimes, or in their temples, they were... They were representatives of the, the gods that they believed to be in heaven so that they wanted to use the idols to, to manipulate or control the powers of nature. So they made temples. They, made, they worshipped their idols. They, they provided their idols with food and clothing in the hope that this would gain their gods, the weather, the, the favor, in the hope that, that they, could, they could get their these powers to, to help them in their struggles in life, whether it be with having children, getting married, having good crops, all those things that are good and we desire. 
Well, the elders were thinking about God, the God we worship, in the same way that the Philistines did. And you can see that in our text when you see how the Philistines understood what, was, what the Israelites were trying to do in verses 7 and 8. They, they had the idea in their head, the Philistines had the idea that whoever held the Ark of the Covenant wielded the power of the God who controlled the gods, like you could see in the plagues against Egypt. The elders treated the Ark of the Covenant of the Holy God as if it was just like a pagan idol. The elders were thinking in the same way that many people involved with the occult or sorcery or magic think about harnessing the the powers that are out there or maybe in here. Many people still believe that it is possible to use wands and spells and talismans uh, to control the powers of nature in order to, to get the things they really want the easy way. When our work can't get what we want, when our wills are resisted by others, when God doesn't just give us what we want, and people are tempted to, to turn to, to magic. When we read books with these kind of plot lines, we have to be careful. They're very common books nowadays. A lot of the young people are reading these books. We have to be very careful that it doesn't twist our view of God like pagans, pagan religions twisted the views of the elders of Israel who should have known better. For Christians today can fall into the same error, especially when we want something really, really bad. Longing for a child or a spouse or a parent to, to live a little longer. Convinced that we absolutely need to, to get into a particular course or, or, or course of study or a particular school. Desperate for a boyfriend or a girlfriend who can become our husband or wife. Desperate for a child. Exhausted by an addiction and just wanting to be, be free. And we hear the, the phrase so often in, in our churches and in Scripture the call to turn to, to God. And we remember how we look at scriptures, we remember how he, he was called to rise up and fight the battles for, for the people of God. We remember how he protected and provided for his people. We think maybe even of Jacob who, who made a bargain with the Lord in Genesis 28. We hear so-called Christians, preachers, saying that we can have whatever we want if we just have faith. It's not hard to fall into the trap of using our prayers as spells like pagans use their idols. And think about your own life. You can ask yourself the question, do, do I sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that if I just orchestrated and organized enough prayer coverage, like those 24 prayer vigils, that God will be forced to grant what I'm praying for? Does the nature of my relationship with, with God revealed in my prayers show that I'm seeking to worship God as, as my Lord and King? 
Or am I thinking of ways to control him? Are we submitting to God in our lives? Or are we trying to use God? Why are we faithful in our worship? Well, when we stop singing, you are worthy, O God. And we start singing, you are useful, O God. It's like replacing the ark with prayer spells. Replacing the one true God as our Heavenly Father who who loves His people with a carved image of a God of our imaginations. So we ask Him, are we worshiping God as a, a power source or as a Heavenly Father? Well, the Lord reveals in our text that the ark was not a carrying case for God. It wasn't a, a God suitcase. God does not have handles. We were talking together in the Profession of Faith, our senior catechism class of the Canons Adored, Article 15, where it states very clearly God owes us nothing. Nothing we, we ever do can, can make Him owe us something. Our God cannot be carried around in our pockets. God cannot be manipulated into doing our bidding. The Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, He does not have handles, but He is seated on His eternal throne in heaven. He's upholding and governing all things by His hand and in accordance with His sovereign will which is to love us, his people, forever and ever. And so he calls us to submit to him as he is. The Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, is not a God who can be controlled by people on earth. It was wrong of the elders to to think that the Lord was so connected to the Ark of the Covenant that he, that he could just be moved around. It was, it was wrong for them to think that they needed to move God to the battlefield in order for God to help them. The plagues in, in Egypt that the Philistines re- referred to that displayed God's almighty power, they were performed before the ark was even constructed. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, God promised that a time would come in the future when no one would even mention the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord because they would have the knowledge that that He has dominion over, over everything. And the truth of the matter is that the Lord of glory is above and beyond all things in heaven and on earth that He reigns over. When Solomon dedicated the temple, you can read about that in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, and it was also the display text as as we walked in. He he made it very clear in his prayer to God. He he asked the question, will God really dwell on the earth? He acknowledged that God cannot be contained in any house that we might build for him, much less a box. And he says, for heaven and the highest heaven cannot be contain God. 
God cannot be manipulated by the things we make with our hands. Not only does he dwell in the heavens, but he also does what pleases him. We sing about that in Psalm 115. He brings salvation in his way as, as he ordained it. And he's not bound but what we, by what we may want to see in our lives. Well, the good news of our text is that the Lord also always acts for the good of his people in fulfillment of his promises. He is beyond the handles of the earth so that he can actually do things the right way, the way that is, is best, so that we can experience the fullness of his love. Now we often think that we know what is best. Logically reason it out. We, we think the things we enjoy. We think what would be best for us. Sometimes we may get angry when our prayers about our lives, about our relationships, about our health are, are not answered in the way that we want. We know that that anger is, is not very helpful. And we know deep down that if God was on a tether in the hands of people, it would really be the worst thing possible. Just think about how hard it is to agree about what kind of weather we want. We see this in our text as well. If the people had their way, had the victory, that blasphemy against God in the land would have continued through Eli and his sons. It would have looked like God's plan, to, which he announced, to, to kill Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli had been thwarted, and the people would have been left with what, the question, what kind of God is this? says one thing, but he, he can't do it. If the people were seeking what they had, if, they, if the people had gotten what they were seeking in, the, in this battle, the land would not have been prepared for that coming faithful priest an anointed king that the Lord had announced, the, the king and priest who would save them, not just from some enemies on the earth, but from eternal punishment, from this punishment their sins deserved. If the Lord had granted sinful Israel's desires at this time, they would also not have learned that he is much greater than they had grown to imagine that he was even willing to suffer shame in order to bring them greater salvation. Well, because God is gracious, unchanging, and faithful to his promise, he did not change his plans when the Israelites tried to, to manipulate him to fulfill their desires by bringing that, that ark in. And as we look at this text, we, we can see the amazing thing that the Lord was willing to suffer shame in order to ensure that his people would not continue in a false understanding of their relationship to him. By letting the enemies take this symbol of his, his splendor, as we sang in Psalm 78, the people learned immediately that the ark in itself did not help the Israelites. In fact, bringing the ark into battle made the situation terribly worse. The whopping 4,000 men 
in their first encounter was overshadowed by the slaughtering of the 30,000. The Philistines were rallied to battle, we read. They found a new level of courage. They, they dug deep from the desperate fear that filled their hearts. And they succeeded. And so think about how the Philistines were looking at the Lord of glory. In the eyes of the Philistines, the Lord of glory who brought Israel up from Egypt, went from being invincible. Woe is us. This has never happened before. From being invincible to being pretty small and insignificant in their eyes. It's very ironic, isn't it? The Lord who orchestrated the whole event from beginning to end. The Lord who was fulfilling this sovereign eternal plan to bring salvation to the church to ensure that blasphemy would not fill the people of God. The Lord who was working in his eternal love for his people was seen by his enemies as just some more scum on their boots. But that shame was also part of his plan. That shame also revealed who our God is, the depth of his love. It was a punishment against Israel, but it's also a punishment of the depth of his self-sacrificial love. What he is willing to do in order that we might see him more clearly. God was willing to suffer the shame of having the ark stolen in order to ensure that his faithful priest was installed. We worship a God who is the Lord of glory, who is enthroned in the heavens, while at the same time a God who is, is willing to, to live among His people, to be with His people, to even humble Himself in order that we might be saved and assured of the depth of His love, that we might understand the, 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 the signs and the symbols of the ark, why there was blood to bring atonement. He did that that we might understand the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son of God. And so we know that the Lord cannot be controlled by people. And we learn that's a good thing. So that we might fully experience His love as he brings it to us in his way. The God who does what, whatever pleases himself, he ensured that the people of God had faithful priests, had an anointed king, the Christ pointing to, or the Messiah pointing to Jesus Christ, and a truthful prophet to prepare them. And then he sent his own son to die in shame so that whoever believes in him may share in his glory as a free gift of grace. And we know it. It's nothing we've earned. It's all God's grace. Doing what pleases Him. Even while they tried to control Him, the Lord of glory was carrying out 
his gracious plan for us. And that gives us great perspective in our lives. Sometimes the way we try to get the things we want is not the way that the Lord brings his salvation to us. This is because the Lord only gives those things that are in his plan, which is good for us. He brings those things in his plan and, and he gives them when we ask, <coughs> when we ask according to who he is, his name, his work. Sometimes the things that he gives to us are, are not the things we ask for. Sometimes his plan involves suffering. We think of Phinehas' wife in the text. We do not know how much she knew about all the sins of her husband and father-in-law. We don't even know what her relationship to the Lord was like but the text uses similar wording to the wording used when Rachel, Jacob's wife, died in childbirth. The poor woman died thinking about the, the, the world that her son would live in. And names him Ichabod, which means either no glory, it's a lament, or it's a question, where is the glory? And whether or not she too had erred in associating God's glory with the ark. And just think of that as mothers giving birth to a, a son to live in a world that you believe that God has left. Whatever she thought, the warning of the question rings through the ages. Where is the glory of God? Well, there will be no glory, Ichabod, in our hearts and lives if we are not united by the Holy Spirit to the Lord God who is in the heavens, who revealed Himself in His Word. There will be no glory of God in, in our lives if we are, are separated from God by rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ. All your symbols, all your rites and prayers are nothing they are not the work of the Lord of hosts in your midst by His Spirit. Every Christless church with their good works checklist that they think can help them get what they want from God is just another Ichabod born in the despair of a world that is, that is trying to escape the consequences of their rebellion through religious magic. There is no glory, Ichabod, in the carved images that we sometimes form of, of a God with handles. The dispensing machine God, as one writer called it, there's no glory in rabbit foot theology. The ark or any other so-called holy item or practice is completely meaningless and, and useless for those who don't believe in the Lord as he revealed himself. So we see again, brothers and sisters, the, the call to submit to God as he is, as he has revealed himself in the fullness of his love for us. The God of glory is among the church by his Holy Spirit who is fixing our eyes not on the things here on, on earth but the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So when you pray, when you want things, remember 
this text. Remember, our prayers are not handles by which we can control God. Remember, our Lord God is in the heavens, in glory. And he has come to us in his grace and in his love through his son, Jesus Christ. And he is able to do all things. And yet he's not controlled by us. The Lord Jesus told us, whatever you need, ask in my name. Ask according to the will of God and revealed in his promises. Sometimes he gives us what we want. Sometimes there are some unanswered prayers that are good, like that country song. And we submit ourselves to him. We know that his will is good. May his spirit lead us to worship him as God Almighty for the sake of his glory and his love and his salvation. Amen. The themes of 1 Samuel 4 are also very clearly expressed in Psalm 115. God enthroned Heaven's cherubim, not to be controlled like idols. And then the urgent call that we might trust in the Lord and find rest in his promises. So we'll sing together Psalm 115, stanzas 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And we'll sing that standing if you're able to stand, although it's several stanzas, so if that's too long, feel free to sit. As well. Psalm 115, standing if you're able, stanzas 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6.